All right, good morning. We are back in our study of Luke. It's been a long week, perhaps for some. And I want to start our lesson off with us just thinking about the word obedience. Um, our society has made this word, and if we're honest with ourselves, we may have made this word an oppressive word, or just a word that we remove from our vocabulary. My three-year-old would say, obedience is oppressive. <laughs> because by nature, we all want to be autonomous. We want to be our own arbiter of what is good and evil, what is fun, and what is actually brings us joy. So my son, before he started walking, he started running. And we live about 30 feet from the road, so when we would go to a park, he would run for the road, and he didn't know the dangers of it. And I would be yelling on the top of my lungs, stop, stop, come back. But he thinks it was funny to not listen to mommy. And so what my, my instructions would actually bring him literal life if he obeyed. Um, so why am I talking about obedience? Our scripture that we read um, didn't even mention the word obedience. It talked about repentance and forgiveness. Um, test, test. Oh. Um, it talked about... It's good, okay. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it talked about repentance and forgiveness, but I think what's undergirding all the section is obedience. We see John's obedience to God's call for him, we see an obedience to rebuke and what that doesn't look like. And then we also just see the obedient one. So let's just start off our text. John shows us his obedience to God's plans for him. He is out in the wilderness. And Isaiah even says, here's one that's going to be out in the wilderness crying. And Luke actually loves John's voice and his impact with prominent figures of the day, like Caesar, Herod, and even the high priest Caiaphas. So I'm not going to go into details about these seven guys, but Luke is orienting his reader about when this is happening. Time has passed since we've last seen John and Jesus. And in verse 23, it's made clear that Jesus is about 30 years old, and so John would be just a little bit older. And we know that this is the same John that we read about a chapter back. This is the son of Zechariah. So John is doing what the angel Gabriel has said to do. John is preparing the way for Jesus. He's preparing people's hearts for the coming Savior. Luke even uses Isaiah's um, prophecy to show that John is leveling out all the obstacles so that all will be able to see the salvation of God. And he's doing this by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism doesn't mean that they are forgiven of their sins. The act of going underwater doesn't actually cleanse their hearts. But people who have heard John's message, who are hearing that the Savior is coming, feel the shame and the weight of their sin. And so baptism is this outward expression of the inner desire that they have to turn from their sin and be forgiven. So a little note on baptism, because I was curious. Um, baptism actually isn't totally um, new in this time. If you were a Gentile and wanting to become a Hebrew or a Jew, um, you would actually undergo baptism to become part of the Jewish family. Um, so this would be different because if you are coming to John and you're a Jew, you're already in the family of God. So this doesn't make sense. So John senses his crowd is in all honest. He says, you're you are a brood of vipers in verse seven. 
And we immediately think, John, you're not going to gain any followers by calling people a brood of vipers. Um, but he doesn't care. He's like, you think because you have Abraham's blood coursing through your veins that you're part of God's family? No, you're a family of snakes. I hope that slingshots you back to Genesis. He's calling them the offspring of the serpent. You're on the wrong side of judgment. There's wrath waiting for you. Your roots are in your lineage. Your roots are in your circumcision. And the axe is at the root of the tree. These things mean nothing if your heart isn't wanting to receive the Messiah. They're confident in their flesh. And John even says this baptism isn't going to save you. People are cut to the core. They're like, what do we do then? And, John's men- and John mentions this in verse 8. Bear fruit with repentance. If you're repented, show it. And so like a good teacher, he gives good examples. He gives one to the layman, to the tax collector, and the soldier. All three are showing that people are in need of care and compassion. So if the layman has more than enough clothing or food, he is to give to those who have none. And the next two, the tax collector and the soldier, John specifically teaches them in regards to their position and their money. Tax, co- tax collectors are not to collect more than they ought to, and the soldier isn't to extort money from others. And they are also to be content. And I think this is a word for us here. And not even if we're not, even if we're not tax collectors or soldiers, some of us work outside the home or inside the home. Some of us are um, in a season of life where we're not working at all uh, for, for a pay. But I think the point John is trying to drive home is that bearing fruit looks like having compassion on the people around us by loving them with our time and our resources and to be content with where God has placed us in life. I think contentment can be a challenging time for us or a challenging season for us. I know it can be for me. There are times where I want my kids to just be a little bit older, a little bit wiser. Um, But I've actually heard from some of you ladies who have older kids to just enjoy this time when they're young. And that's really just wisdom to be content with where they're at and where I'm at. So I think when we are content, we are not greedy. We're not holding on to what we could offer others. And we're not asking more of others. And really, we're not demanding more from God. And John's way of bearing fruit with repentance isn't exhaustive. We'll see as we go throughout the book of Luke what it's like to follow Jesus. So John's message is life-changing, not just for those wanting to repent, but even for the people around them. John is creating selfless followers for Jesus. In verse 15, we see people who are wondering if John is the Messiah. And John doesn't even entertain the idea. He places himself beyond the lowliest you can imagine. John says he's not even worthy to stoop down and take off the Messiah's sandals. He says, don't even think about it. And he says, why? He says, what I'm doing is an outward work, baptism with water. The Messiah is going to change your heart. He's going to do a great inward work. You're not even going to know how much a sinner you are until he gives you the Holy Spirit and he cleanses you with fire And that is when you will see the sin that is in you. Here's what else the Messiah can do. He can send those who are unwilling to repent into hell, into an eternity of unquenchable fire. As Jenna mentioned last week, Luke's gospel isn't entirely chronological. So Luke jumps ahead in time and we see that John is arrested. 
but I think it's showing what it looks like to not turn from our sin. Herod is a sinner just like us, and John warns him what he's doing is wrong. But Herod chooses his sin and tries to drown out John's rebuke by imprisoning him. Luke shows us what an unrepented heart looks like, and we know that it will end in an eternity of unquenchable fire. Now, we don't want to just repent so that we don't go to hell. It doesn't work like that. God knows our hearts. And so Luke actually shifts the focus onto another man, the Son of God, Jesus. The one who can give the Spirit, who can change our hearts to love God and hate our sin. And so the whole book is now going to go in the direction that will cause our love for Jesus to grow. In verse 21, we see Jesus coming to be baptized, and we know in other Gospels it's by John. Now, Jesus doesn't need to repent of any sin. He is sinless, as will further be solidified in the next few verses, and therefore he doesn't need to be forgiven. But Jesus, first, is agreeing with John's message that repentance is needed. So being baptized by John, he shows that he's in, in agreement with that. But more importantly, Jesus is identifying himself with his people, with the human race, and becoming the man that can sympathize with us and also be our perfect example. It's the worthy one identifying with the unworthy people. Ladies, just think about that. John was a prophet of God and said that he was unworthy. And he's pointing to the one who is worthy and identifying with us. This is that Jesus was praying as well, and he does this a lot, as we will see when we read the book of Luke. Jesus is constantly seeking communion with his Father, and so in this moment, we see all three persons of the Trinity present. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Kind of like the first day of school, I didn't go through this, but you're probably checking your kids' backpack. You have your pencil, your erasers, your snacks. Okay, you're ready to go. It's a bit of a weak analogy, but Jesus... You're the son of God. You've been baptized. You have the Holy Spirit. You're ready to start your ministry. But Luke interjects with a genealogy, which we all love. (laughs) And we never skip it, right? (laughs) At least we look for the main guys. And so I just want to look, or we won't look there, but Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, and he starts with Abraham. But Luke is way more extensive. He goes all the way back to Adam. So I kind of want this next part to be a bit interactive. So we'll see how it goes. So God created Adam, and with him he created Eve. And he gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply. And he also gave them the command to not eat from the fruit, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, they will surely die. So what did Adam and Eve do? They ate the fruit. They disobeyed. But before they ate the fruit, someone came into the garden. Who was it? Satan. He came in and he did what to Eve? He deceived her. Yeah. He twisted God's words. Did God really say? And then he lied to them. You won't die. Adam, the son of God, failed. Sin and death were unleashed in the once perfect garden The harmonious relationship between God and the Son of God was broken. Everyone who was born after would would be greatly affected by this one act of rebellion. Adam did not choose to obey God. 
He didn't choose to stay in line with God's perfect will. And now Luke is going to show Jesus, the man, the son of God, perfectly obey God in the face of temptation. Adam was in paradise. He probably had a full belly and he gave into temptation. And now we see Jesus in the wilderness, possibly on the edge of death from starvation. All of these temptations that we see is to drive a wedge between the son and the father. The devil wants Jesus to act according to his own will and not the father's. And I think Lydia did a great job at drawing out how we can identify with these, with these temptations, instant gratification, power, even testing God's word. But I also want to make a point that these temptations are unique. These temptations are specifically for the son of God. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 4. Sorry, verse 3 and verse 9 of chapter 4. The devil prefaces his temptations with, if you are the son of God, he's targeting the sonship. He's targeting the son's obedience to the father. So look at the first temptation. Jesus, you're hungry. Why isn't your father feeding you? If you're the son of God, turn this stone into a piece of bread. You don't need to wait for your father to provide. Take matters into your own hand. Jesus would have been pretty weak. He was led by the spirit into the wilderness and hadn't eaten for 40 days. In black and white, it says he was hungry. He is fully man and has not eaten in 40 days. I am not me when I am hungry. Have you ever seen that Snickers commercial? But Jesus responds to the devil. He responds with God's word, his words. Man shall not live by bread alone. This brings us back to the time when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and God provided for them. Jesus was there when God rained down bread from heaven. God provided for a wicked people. Surely God will provide for his son. But furthermore, the verse that Jesus quotes goes on to say that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. It doesn't matter if you eat bread or not. God can speak the word and your fate is decided if you live or die. Jesus obeys God by not taking matters into his own hands. The second temptation, the devil offers the kingdoms of the world to Jesus on the contingency that Jesus bows the knee to him and worships the devil. Now, what I'm saying isn't in the Bible, but I think it's true. I think the Bible shows us this. I don't think Satan knows God's plan to put Jesus on a Roman cross. I don't think he knows that Jesus is going to go down a lowly, humble road to Calvary. So I think what Satan's doing here is that he sees the Son of God in human form and is like, what are you doing in human flesh? You should be on a throne. Let me put you back up there. If only you obey me. If only you worship me. And that's the root of this temptation. It's not just gaining power. It's choosing to worship, to worship Satan for that power. And Jesus responds with, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him, you only, and him only you shall serve. Philippians 2, 8, 11 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, death, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus does not bow his knee to worship Satan. He does not obey Satan, but he chooses to serve his Father and obey the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Every knee will bow to Jesus because he was perfectly obedient and sinless. He knows the perfect plans of the Father and chooses to obey and trust in him alone. The last temptation, Satan thinks he's pulling out the big ones. Whether they are in a vision or actually at the highest point of the temple, Satan questions how much faith Jesus has in his Father. You trust and love your Father so much, Jesus. Let's see if he loves you. Throw yourself off. Even his word says he will send his angels to care for you. In fact, we're at the temple. We're where God dwells. It should be no problem. Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God has just said in chapter 3, verse 22, you are my beloved son. Using scripture and asking God to prove it isn't a sign of trust and obedience. It's actually a sign of a lack of faith. It's not taking God at his word. And so the devil leaves Jesus, and Jesus is victorious. But we can't help but think of Adam. The first man failed to not take God at his word. He failed to not worship God alone, and he failed to not obey and trust God. Adam failed when he allowed the serpent to deceive him, and he therefore unleashed sin and death into this world. And all who were born afterwards were born into a fallen world with fallen minds and fallen hearts and bodies and desires and a broken relationship with God. And as long as that is there, there can be no reconciliation between humans and God. But praise God that his son Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, withstood temptation. We can draw near to the throne of grace because we have Jesus who withstood the temptation of sin and remains sinless, as Hebrews 4.16 says. This is one of the pivotal points in Luke's gospel, the other also being the death and resurrection. Jesus defeated sin and he defeated death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Ladies, I hope that this reminds you and gives you confidence in Jesus. So I want us leaving here today with our eyes on the Son of God and not ourselves, not even our own obedience to God. The descendants of Abraham were trusting in their obedience to the law, but Jesus' acts is at the root of that kind of obedience. We are to trust in God's grace that is seen through sending his Son, who is completely obedient. Our obedience will not save us. Lord willing, my son will learn to obey, and that will come out of his love for me and his trust for me. And Lord willing, our obedience will flow out of our love for Jesus and our trust for him and what he has done. This should cause our love for Jesus to grow. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, the spirit that was with Jesus in the wilderness is the same that resides within us. We can have victory over temptations and over sin, but when we fail, and we will, there's forgiveness ready to be forgiven and when we repent. Jesus not only withstood the temptation of sin, but he bore them on himself on the cross. And when we choose to bow our knee to him, there is so much more freedom and mercy and grace and forgiveness there. Let's put our faith in the one who was fully obedient. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for what you have done and what we cannot have done. We thank you for sending your son on our behalf to pay the full price of our sin. And we pray that we would trust in his work alone and not ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.